DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is a professor of spiritual theology at St. John Vianney Theological Seminary in Denver, Colorado. He is a graduate of the Pontifical University at St. Thomas Aquinas in Rome. He specializes in the wisdom of the saints and mystics of the Church, and in particular, Carmelite spirituality. He is also the author of Hidden Mountain, Secret Garden, a theological contemplation on prayer. In this particular series of episodes, we focus in on the mystery of faith in the wisdom of the saints. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Willis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Anthony. It's great to be with you, Chris. I really would like to take the opportunity to talk to you now about Hidden Mountain Secret Garden, the extraordinary book that you have made available to all of us. Thank you so much. Well, I'm, I'm very grateful for Two Discerning Hearts and to you personally for making, uh, making it possible to, to get it published. It was a work of grace all the way through, but Discerning Hearts certainly was an instrument of God in making this possible. So many people that I know that are reading the book have told me that it speaks to them in, in a unique way. It is something, it's, I remember talking to a woman I know who just with tears in her eyes kept telling me it was filled with aha moments, those things that she knew it, but she didn't know she knew it. Is that what happens to us in prayer sometimes? Well, I think in, in prayer, in fact, my experience has been with people who read the book, if they're spending regular time in prayer, they tend to have that experience with the book that you're talking about. There was an, a lady from Bakersfield, California, who reported she spends several hours in prayer every day, and she she expressed how some of the things in there just really spoke to her heart. And I think part of the reason for that is the way God provided for me to be able to write the book, I originally wanted to hurry up and get something out, and he didn't let that happen. Instead, he kept on calling me back to prayer. At one point, uh, my family was visiting my brother-in-law at the Carthusian Monastery in Vermont. He's a, he's a uh, Carthusian monk. One of my family members had an accident, so we couldn't leave the monastery. We were normally there only three days, and the, the Carthusians felt so bad about the family member, they invited us to stay a little bit longer until the family member got well enough to recover. And the result was I was way on top of a mountain with no internet, TV, radio, or telephone, and I thought, well, God must want me to prayerfully go through this text I had the opportunity to do uh, for several days in an environment like that of Mount Equinox in Vermont. God begins to give you insights in those moments, and it was a privilege to be able to write those down. It brought a kind of depth to the book that uh, I hadn't expected, and I began to realize that the book wasn't going to be simply an academic exploration of uh, what the saints and mystics said about prayer. The book was something actually born of the experience of prayer, at least for me. 
and it sits on the the shoulders of the saints and mystics and what they what they've said before us and it explores their insights i made efforts to apply some of the things that i was seeing in their writings to my own life and and shared those in the book and well, when somebody says they're reading the book, that's the kind of experience I hope they had. I hope that if they're people of prayer, that they linger over some of the insights of the saints and mystics that I was able to linger over, or that some of my students lingered have lingered over through the years, because much of that book is also the fruit of my conversations with young men who were preparing for the priesthood. We have a spirituality year, and they, they dedicate a whole year of their lives to prayer, I lecture to them during that year on the spiritual classics, including John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, Therese of Lisieux, and Elizabeth of the Trinity. And sometimes, because they're spending so much time in prayer, the Lord speaks to their heart. They see something uh, that's just so beautiful. And o- over the years, I thought, you know, this is too beautiful not to share with other people. This would be edifying not only for future priests, but for all the faithful. That's how the book came to be, and I'm glad to hear what that people bring it into prayer, share in that experience. That's a beautiful thing to have happened. We encounter many saints, blessed people who have taken this journey, and the standouts really among all of them if that's possible to say that amongst the saints, are those Carmelites, are those those mystics of the church. Can you help us in two areas? First, help us to understand what a mystic is, but then also why the Carmelite spirituality, and why it speaks so strongly in this area. The Catechism of the Catholic Church talks about the Christian life as, a, as the mystical life because it's a life in union with the mystery of Christ through the, the sacraments or the holy mysteries of the church unto unity with the Holy Trinity, the, the greatest mystery of all. Anyone who's been baptized and who has faith, there's something very mysterious about their life, very mystical about their life. In this sense, you have their lives, there's a visible reality to their life. And on on the outside, their life might look very, very ordinary. But coming through that ordinariness is a presence of God that uh, witnesses to the world His loving presence, His presence for us, His presence that has not abandoned us or forsaken us, but has implicated itself in our plight. This is true of every single Christian. But the Catechism of the Catholic Church says this mystical life, it progresses by means of the cross. And for Christians who follow Christ crucified, who renounce themselves, pick up their cross and follow in the footsteps of their crucified master, giving everything to Jesus, these people develop an intimacy with the Lord in which the Holy Spirit prompts them to witness in even more vibrant ways than someone who maybe doesn't ever make steps to mature in the spiritual life. If somebody matures in the spiritual life and they become more and more under the influence of the Holy Spirit as they follow in the steps of Jesus, at a certain stage, we can rightfully call them mystics because what characterizes their life is the mystical life of the church itself. In a certain way, they are living icons 
of the presence of Christ Jesus in the world through the church, through their unity with the church. And so when Christians, especially when Catholics say that so-and-so is a mystic, we mean that somebody is followed Jesus so closely that they've allowed themselves to be imbued and prompted by the Holy Spirit to give a very poignant and acute witness to the presence, the saving presence of God in the world. Why the Carmelites? Well, there's a way, especially since the time of Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross, that the whole Carmelite vocation is especially ordered to this mystical witness. Not every Carmelite is a mystic or uh, at least not in uh, the same public way we might consider John of the Cross or Teresa of Avila or Therese of Lisieux. But every Carmelite tries to order his or her life to that reality. They want to live a life that is completely docile to the Holy Spirit. And they have been blessed with a patrimony of saints, uh, especially the spiritual doctrine of St. John of the Cross, but more recently of Therese of Lisieux and Elizabeth of the Trinity, the spiritual patrimony that gives good, practical, lived advice about what it means to follow Jesus completely. At the center of those teachings, if, if we were to, you know, what is it that characterizes those teachings that is the special emphasis of those teachings? You'll notice that there's a primacy of contemplation or mental prayer, that for the Carmelite, intimacy with Christ in prayer comes first, and then anything else the Lord asks of it flows from that intimacy. Now, there's a way in which every form of religious life in the church is attentive to this mystery, but the Carmelite patrimony is especially attentive to it. So, for example, St. John, in his doctrine, uh, I'm thinking about the Ascent of Mount Carmel, uh, book two, while he is very clear that every form of spiritual exercise is certainly appropriate for one's spiritual life in the early stages of it. As we mature in our walk with the Lord, those many different kinds of spiritual exercises we must take up become more and more simple as we are drawn into the simplicity of the divine nature. So that as that desire for prayer matures in the heart, uh, one begins to yearn for silence and solitude more and more. This doesn't mean that other methods of prayer don't have a legitimate and important place in the life of the church and should not be promoted. They're, they're quite vital. But this simplicity, this simple movement of faith, this movement of the heart that Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity also speaks about, what they're advocating is not complex, but but something that a, a soul is often prompted to after communion. And they just draw attention to it in a very compelling way. And I think because of that, because of their witness, uh, Carmelites, are, especially in our culture, which is uh, extremely busy, extremely noisy, extremely self-occupied, our culture needs to hear their message, a message that draws us away from self, draws us away from noise, draws us away from busyness into the silence in which God communicates his love to us. There's something so compelling about that. I mean, it, it sounds maybe to some, well, that's an interiority I'll never be able to get there. 
I mean, that is just, that's too deep for me. I have everyday concerns and all these other problems. And yet, someone like Therese speaks so strongly to our hearts. She seems relatable. She seems like the little flower, the little one. Isn't it true, what you just said then, that all those Carmelites, and especially those mystics, they're extraordinarily practical in living this out? Yeah, it's hidden, not a a lot of people are aware of, but... For example, John of the Cross, many of the people who were his spiritual directees were lay people. It's true that he, he worked with priests and he worked with a number of contemplative nuns, whole communities in fact. But he also delighted in providing spiritual direction to lay people because his experience, he first began to learn to pray this, this mental prayer, or this contemplative prayer. He first learned it as a lay person himself. He used to say that one of the greatest mystics he knew, one of the greatest saints he knew was his brother Francisco, a married man and father of children uh, who had an extremely rough life. And he believed his brother but and also his mother were great people of prayer. Teresa of Avila had that experience with her father. When Teresa of Avila, before her conversion, was being very lax about prayer, she was convicted by the the example of her father who took daily mental prayer or daily contemplation very seriously, made it central to his life. And that set an example for her. And so the, the early Carmelites, but also the Carmelites of our time, Therese of Lisieux was very moved by her father's example and, and spoke into that. And she and the um, sisters of her community knew full well that her spiritual mission regarding the little way promoting a radical following of Christ Jesus that took you into the depths of his divine mercy, that this was in part not only an apostolic mission, but it was also a contemplative mission because God's mercy is something that is primarily received before it's given. And and finally, Elizabeth of the Trinity, among her major works, most of her letters, in fact, uh, some of her most significant major works, they were written not for priests and religious, they were written for for the lay faithful. In fact, she wrote, a, one of her last writings was a retreat. She wrote for her, her sister, a married lay woman uh, with two children at the time. And if you read that work, it, it was a 10-day um, a retreat. That retreat kind of presupposes that her sister is going to be able to enter into the same depths of contemplative prayer that Elizabeth of the Trinity herself was enjoying and drawing from in her final agony. So contemplative prayer, although those who have a contemplative vocation uh, receive very special graces for it and in a certain way enliven the church through their dedication to that form of prayer, contemplative prayer, especially as promoted by the Carmelites, really is for all the lay faithful. Uh, Consider this. And this may not speak to everybody, but Cardinal Stafford once told a story here in the Archdiocese of Denver uh, many years ago to the Catechist of the Archdiocese, where he talked about walking into the church uh, when he was a a young man. It was around the time of his first communion. I can't remember if it was before or after his first communion. He walked into the church, and uh, the sun was shining through the stained glass windows, And he said, as I walked into the church and I I was dazzled by the sun shining through the stained glass windows, I received impressions 
of, of the creed into my heart. That's what contemplative prayer could be summarized as. It's, it's the experience of children who are vulnerable to the splendor of the Lord shining through and on us. As that splendor shines through and on us, truths are communicated to our heart. They're, they're written deep within us. Now, we might forget them. We might backslide. We might, we might not return to that moment of prayer for a long, long time. But that moment of prayer lives in us. Uh, another common experience here in Colorado is people go on the mount, into the mountains and they, they say how they, they experience God in the mountain. They see the sun rising in the morning and the, the rays of the sun uh, shining on the bright snow at, uh, up above tree line, the splendor of it that bathes everything. They become aware of a certain closeness with God. That's a very beginning experience of contemplative prayer. That's, that's a, a love letter from the Lord. The Carmelite tradition just teaches us how to read that love letter so that when God's speaking to us, we don't forget what he said, but, but we make it part of our daily life. When we take time to go back and, and to really dive into the writings, the teachings of these Carmelites and also other maybe doctors of the church or just the saints who have written on prayer, their means of entering into prayer is so time-tested and church-tested. It's a sadness that we continually quest for the newest fad, the deeper way, that they're trying to find other means in our modern age while maybe that questing is not necessarily a bad thing, it would be, wouldn't it, if it's neglecting what came before? And that's part of the reason why I wrote Hidden Mountain Secret Garden. Today we have a very consumerist attitude towards spiritual literature and even to prayer itself. And we do tend to look for the, the latest fad. And a lot of literature today, even by some good sources, is very, very weighted with uh, psychological observations and concern about experiencing different kinds of psychic states and, and discussions about enlightenment and so forth. And none of that is really wrong in itself. It's just a little bit besides the point. When one goes to the more ancient literature of the church, one gains a vantage point against which he can begin or she can begin to discern the spiritual movements of our time and see what is good in them and what might be a little bit just kish, not really meaty at all, but more of a distraction. For example, when you go to the more ancient literature, uh, whether it's St. Augustine or St. Athanasius, but also John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, you'll notice a primacy not so much on the what the person who prays experiences, they do talk about those things, but that's not what they're, they're mainly astonished over and uh, what they primarily draw attention to. What they try to draw attention to, what they are acutely aware of, is the splendor and uh, the wonder and the awe that we only find when we're drawn into the very presence of God himself. That, in fact, God, in a saving mystery disclosed to us through Jesus Christ, is breaking into our time uh, at every moment, right here and right now. He's breaking into our time right here and right now because 
He is vitally concerned about our lives. He, God himself, is distressed that we do not know the happiness that he has yearned for us to know from all eternity. He's distressed about our families and our, our work situations. He's distressed about the state of our lives and ways that we are dissipating ourselves that are not for his glory. He's distressed by these things because he, he can't be indifferent because he loves us and he wants us to flourish. And this is exactly what the saints and mystics saw. Their vision of prayer wasn't so much about what you do to pray. Their vision of prayer was keep your eyes fixed on God. And when you behold him, prayer is, is something that just flows when you see his great love, you can never be the same again. His love draws you out of yourself. Your, his love causes you to want to, to give everything to him. His, his love transforms you uh, and makes of your life something beautiful, something, something that reveals all that is good and holy and true about our humanity, that reveals uh, God's love in a time where people have forgotten about God. This is what the saints and mystics want us to see. They're not so worried about mental hygiene and the therapeutic effects of prayer. What the saints and mystics want us to know is the splendor of God's presence in our lives, a splendor that can become the animating source for a whole new way of life, an animating source that allows us to raise up others and become a word of hope, a sign of hope for them. Are we capable of becoming mystics, Anthony? Are we called to that type of mysticism? We are very capable of it. Not all of us will attain the same degree of holiness, and not all of us will be canonized. But very few saints in the church have been canonized. There are many more saints who who are not canonized, who are unknown to us. And I think we're going to be surprised by joy when we come into the heavenly king, kingdom and, and see all the people that we didn't think were saints who are there waiting for us. I think that's going to be part of the joy of heaven. And so I'm not saying that all of us will be the same kind of public witness that we might have with a John Paul II or a Teresa of Calcutta. However, all of us are called to the same holiness in Christ Jesus. That holiness is being lavished out upon us every day through the ministry and preaching of the church. So there is every reason to hope that we will attain the degree of holiness that God is destined for us, yearned for us to have from before time began. But to enter into that, to become the, the, the saint, the mystic that God has called us to be, it requires that we do exactly what Jesus asked of us. We must renounce ourselves. We must pick up our cross. And we must follow him. There is no other way. I wish we had more time in this segment, but that's the beauty of recording. We'll be able to continue our discussion in, in a later episode. But in concluding this one, any final thoughts? Well, John of the Cross, in his spiritual doctrine, a foundation that people aren't usually very aware of is he keeps his eyes focused on Jesus. Jesus' obedience to the Father, but also Jesus' 
total vulnerability, total freedom to allow himself to be stripped of everything for the glory of the Father and for the salvation of his friends. And we are his friends. If we look into the teachings of Elizabeth of the Trinity, Teresa of Avila, Therese of Lisieux, and John of the Cross, they will lead us into that great mystery where we, uh, we will discover that obedience of Christ that is available to us in faith. And we will find the freedom to allow ourselves to be completely stripped and completely offered to the Lord in love. Some people have told me that this idea is a scary idea and they pull back from it, it seems too hard from them. And I'm speaking right now to moms and dads. Your finest moment has been those moments when your children most needed you to sacrifice and to give for them when there was something on, on the line that, where they needed you. Your finest moment was when you were able to be there and give without counting the cost. When you had the freedom to be completely vulnerable to the situation and you weren't worried about what might happen to you because you loved your son and daughter so much. Well, that's exactly how God loves us. In loving us that way, he opens up for us the possibility of loving one another like that with that fullness of life, not just for a few moments or um, under specific difficult circumstances, but to live like that every moment of every day. Uh, This is what Jesus meant when he told us that he came that we might have life and have it to the full. A life lived to the full is a life lived with unreserved love, a life poured out with love for our brothers and sisters who need us the most. So if you, you haven't uh, really explored or taken seriously the, uh, the teachings and writings of the saints and mystics before in your life, I hope you begin to uh, crack them open a little bit now, especially Therese of Lisieux or Elizabeth of the Trinity, who speaks so well to our times. They can lead you into a life of love, a life of so much meaning, you will never, ever regret it. You will feel like you've finally begun to live. Thank you so much, Dr. Lilith. Thank you, Chris. It's been a delight to be with you. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. To hear and or to download this episode, or to learn more about the mystical doctors and teachings of the saints, go to discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of discerninghearts.com. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join me next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis.